All right, we're going to begin this evening in Luke chapter 12, starting at verse 16. Although actually, uh, to get yourself a little bit of context, it's helpful to understand where Jesus was coming from in this text. Uh, Jesus was teaching the scribes and the Pharisees, if you read there in verse 12, actually he was teaching sort of a broad crowd, a, a large multitude. In the first couple verses of chapter 12 explain a very large multitude had come unto him. And he was talking about hypocrisy. He was talking about forgiveness. He was dealing with what we might call pretty generally spiritual themes. Themes for people to recognize, to, to recognize aspects of their interior life and their spiritual life before God when all of a sudden um, he was interrupted. That happens about verse 13. He's interrupted by somebody who says, Teacher, Rabbi, stop. Would you tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me and give me what's mine? And, you know, I, I don't think that Jesus was um, annoyed at this interruption. But he sure sort of went off on it. Because Jesus said, hmm, mister, first of all, he said, this isn't my problem. I'm not going to deal with it. But then he goes on an extended section where he deals with covetousness, greed, material things, and and how we should regard those. Which leads us to believe that this was really the man's problem. The the, the man who said, Lord, make my brother divide uh, inheritance with me. He thought that he had a legal problem. That's the way he was thinking. But Jesus is trying to tell him, Mr., whatever legal problem you think you might have, there's actually a greater problem going on in your heart. And the greater problem is this. You regard material things with the wrong frame of mind, and that's a dangerous thing for your life. That's why Jesus said there in verse uh, 15, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. We covered that verse last time, but that's just sort of the entry. You could say that's almost the theme statement for the verses we're going to consider here tonight. So verse 16. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So I said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Jesus, verse 15, he says, hey, beware of covetousness, take heed. Your life doesn't consist in the things that you possess. Now let me illustrate that point by telling you guys a story. And it's a parable, it's a story. He spoke a parable to them saying, the ground of a rich man yielded plentifully. The man in Jesus' parable was blessed with good soil to grow crops in. He didn't make that soil. He didn't make the rain that came down upon it. Now, I don't want to diminish the fact. There's no farmer who gets rich by being lazy. 
But nevertheless, even with all the hard work of the farmer, he has to depend upon the goodness and the grace of God. The grace of God in the soil, the grace of God with the weather, the grace of God with pestilence and all the rest. So by adding hard work to the fertile ground, he was a financial success. He was so successful that he had trouble managing his resources. What do I mean by trouble? Look at it there in verse 17. He says, I have no room to store my crops. Now, if you're a farmer, isn't that a great position to be in? I got so much crops, I don't have the room to put them in. What am I going to do? Now, his trouble and his anxiety were reflected in the words in verse 17. What shall I do? And this is what I want you to see. When this man was very successful, did it take away from all the cares and the worries of his life? No. It added new cares and worries to his life. I like something I read from a a good preacher named Morrison. He said this. When we are young, we think that to be rich means to be free from anxiety altogether. But this rich man was just as full of cares as the beggar without a sixpence in the world. Isn't that true? When you're young, you think, oh man, if only I had money, man, that would solve it. I could live my life worry-free. Until you get along in years and you find out both through your personal experience and through meeting other people, you find out that some of the most tightly wound, stressed out, anxiety-filled people are people who have got a lot of money. It just doesn't necessarily answer that. And that was the case for this man. Well, what was he going to do? He had this problem managing his resources. So verse 18 says, I will do this. With a wealth of resources, the man in the parable very confidently planned his future. He said, listen, I'm going to build to better manage my wealth. And then what am I going to do? I'm going to enjoy life to the fullest. I'll go on a building program, I'll manage my wealth, I'll take care of my assets, and then at the end of all, I'll eat, drink, and be merry, and everything will be great. Or will it? Verse 20, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. That's pretty strong of God, isn't it? I'd just like to address something to you, God says. He looks you in the eye and he says, Fool! That's really got to hit you. And the man was a fool because in one night, all of his accomplishments and plans were ruined. You see, he made business plans. He made life plans. But he could not control the day of his death. And so all of his accomplishments, all of his plans, what did they come to? They came to nothing. The man was a fool. He was not a fool because he was rich. No, not at all. That's not the point. He was a fool because he lived without any awareness of eternity and without any preparation for eternity. This night your soul is required of you and there's nothing that you have to show for it. Matter of fact, I'm very struck by that wording in verse 20. Did you see that? Your soul will be required of you. That's the language of obligation. This man owed his life, his livelihood, and his wealth to God. But most of all, he owed his soul to God. And it was going to be required of him and required of him that night. 
He was obligated to God every day of his life, was he not? But even though you and I are obligated to God, we're in debt to God every day of our life, there's going to come the day for myself and for you when we stand before God and our soul is required of us. You know, we talk about it sometimes. We talk about it sometimes in joking ways, this idea of appearing before the pearly gates, you know, and get in or get out. Let me tell you, even though it's not St. Peter there, even though, you know, they don't have wings and this and that, there's going to come a day when you pass from this life to the next and you're going to have to give account for your soul. Your soul will be required of you on that day. And here's the whole point. Ladies and gentlemen, here's the whole point of of the parable. You're a fool if you don't prepare for that day. If you've spent your life so consumed with what you have or what you want to have or what you can enjoy in this world, and if you don't give adequate and wise preparation for the age to come, you're a fool. And I feel a little harsh saying that because it's a strange thing to look out at the face of a bunch of pleasant people and to be saying to those faces, some of you might be a fool. But if this is the case, it's the case. Everybody would think that the man in the parable was a great success. But what did God say about him? You're a fool. Eternity proved that the man was a fool. And his story shows that it isn't only sin to fail to prepare for eternity. It's stupid. It's not just sinful. It's stupid. Matter of fact, look at the question there in verse 20. Whose will those things be which you have provided? In a sense, those things didn't belong to God because he never surrendered them to God. They didn't belong to the rich fool because he was dead and he couldn't do anything more with them. Whom do they belong to? I don't know. Maybe you could say that they belonged to the devil. Verse 21. So is he who lays up treasure for himself. The rich man in the parable thought That it was all for him. Look at it back in verse 18. My crops, my barns, my goods. Verse 19, my soul. Everything was about him. And nothing was about God or about others. You see, God proved in the end that nothing was his. It wasn't his crops. It wasn't his barns. It wasn't his good. And in the end... Even his soul belonged to God because God said your soul is required of you. Isn't that heavy? Friends, he didn't have any crops. He didn't have any barns. He didn't have any goods. And his soul was dead to God. So Jesus says, again, verse 21, so is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to make this perfectly clear. And, and, and I hope that you'll, you'll, you'll receive this just in the way that it's meant. This man's problem was not that he had wealth on this earth. The man's problem was that he was not rich towards God. And if you have wealth on this earth, it's funny for me to say that. You know what I always think of when I talk about if you have wealth on this earth? I think about it, and then I remember that Even the poorest among us in this room right now live at a level that only kings lived at in Jesus' day. Could you imagine what they would think if you could get in the time machine and go back to Jesus' day and if your smartphone would work? 
what they do is they think you were a sorcerer, right? And they'd probably put you to death or something. I, I mean, think of the conveniences in your life that you take for granted. And I know you might have come here tonight completely stressed out because you feel like you're behind the eight ball economically. You know, your home has lost value. Work isn't good. You're not getting the overtime. Whatever it is, all these different economic problems. But I'll tell you, despite all of that, despite all that, you live at a level that is so far above what almost everybody lived at in the days of Jesus. If you go home and open up your closet and see a closet full of clothes, only the wealthiest people in Jesus' day had a closet full of clothes. I mean, I could go on and on, but you get the point. But here's the point. The, the, the point isn't that it's bad to be wealthy. No, you've got to lay up treasure in heaven. You've got to be rich towards God. That's the key. So what are some ways to become rich toward God, as Jesus mentions in uh, verse 21? Well, you can become rich towards God by sacrificial giving to those in need, by trusting in Jesus for every resource, by having a heart of generosity and being a giver. Now listen, I don't want to sell this short in in, in any way whatsoever, We can't obscure the fact that earthly riches often keep people from going after heavenly riches the way that they should. Let me read to you a very heavy verse on this from 1 Timothy chapter 6. But those who desire to be rich fall in temptation and to snare and many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. I want you to think of men drowning in destruction and perdition because all they focus on is earthly riches and they're not rich towards God. Okay, can you put that picture in your mind? The the problem is hardly anybody ever sees themselves in that picture. And this is what we have to be sensitive to. Ladies and gentlemen, listen, I, I think that we should have an attitude that John Wesley used to have. Do you remember John Wesley, that great preacher of 18th century England? You see, John Wesley taught and wisely lived regarding riches. He said this. He said, earn as much as you can, save as much as you can, and give as much as you can. And let me tell you, man, John Wesley lived it. One thing you can say about Wesley is he walked that talk. He himself lived on 28 British pounds a year and gave the rest away. Now, I'll be honest with you, I have no idea of what economic, I don't know if that was a humble living, a moderate living, I don't know if it was a big living, I don't know. But this is what amazes me about John Wesley. He lived on 28 pounds a year and gave the rest away. That was true when he made 30 pounds a year, It was true when he made 60 pounds a year. It was true when he made 90 pounds a year. And it was true when he made 120 pounds a year. When he was making four times what he made before, he still said, I'll live on 28 pounds a year and give the rest away. Look, that kind of attitude that says, I want to be rich towards God, that is what inoculates us against this disease of covetousness and materialism. And friends, I'll just be very straight with you. We just got to understand that this is one of the great idols of our age. I I think back sometimes 
to people as they lived in the Middle Ages. We're studying that on my Tuesday night class in church history. And so, you know, you think of these people who lived in, in the Middle Ages in Europe and such like this, and you think of what a cruel, brutal time it was. How life was so cheap. And how they would just cut and kill and murder and this and that. And you think, wasn't anybody nice back then? Didn't they have any kindness back then? You say, how could a people or a culture have such a blind spot? And then you think, what are our blind spots as a culture? I wonder if this isn't one of them. And we just have to yield our hearts to God and say, oh, Lord, would you? Lord, listen, I don't expect anybody in this room... Not only do I not expect, I don't think it's good. I don't think it's anybody, it's God's anybody good in this room for you to pray, Lord, make me less wealthy. Some of you think you might have been praying that prayer. (laughs) But I don't see how that does any good. No, no, no. Say, Lord, show me how to be rich towards God. Make that your prayer. All right, Jesus goes on here, starting at verse 22. Then he said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, Do not worry about your life, what you'll eat, nor about the body, what you'll put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Isn't that great in verse 22? I say to you, do not worry about your life. Greed and worry are often closely connected. Greed can never get enough, and worry is afraid that it'll never have enough. But neither one of them have their eyes on Jesus. And and look, I I just pray for you who who seem to be bound in a life full of worry and anxiety. I know some people suffer under this much more than other people do. But I just ask you, please come to Jesus and ask him to work gently and significantly hard to set you free from worry. You see, you can be unfaithful to God through worry just as much as you can through covetousness. Both covetousness and worry are ways that we say, God, I'm going to take control of this, and I'm not going to trust you in the midst of it. And let me tell you this, do not worry is a very loving command from God. Do you know how much worry stresses you out and ruins your health? I mean, you could look it up study after study, what a detrimental effect worry and stress has on our life. One of the reasons why God tells you to not worry is because he wants you to enjoy the benefits in your life of less stress. Now please, of course we understand that there's a difference between a godly sense of responsibility and an ungodly, untrusting worry. We understand that there's a difference. It's not always easy to tell where the difference is. But we say, Lord, guide us along the path of that very thing. Why? Because right there he says, verse 23, life is more than food. You see, the worry that Jesus spoke about is the worry about our immediate material things. That if that's all we're consumed of, basically we bring our life down to basically the same level as animals. Friends, I I don't mean to sound mean when I say this. But there are many people who live their life on the same basic level that animals live their lives. What are they concerned about? They're concerned about uh, what they're going to eat, being as comfortable as they possibly can, and reproducing. That's the entire level of their life. 
And listen, what, what I would want to say to that person or to anybody who finds their life too much in that direction, you were made for more. You're made in the image of God. You're not meant to live just on this animal level. God has made you glorious in his image to be concerned with not only the things on this earth, which God cares about in your life, but God has made you to care about things that matter for eternity, and he wants to work those things in your life. So lift up your eyes, lift up your heart. He's made you to be kings and priests with him, to sit on thrones in heaven with him. That's a destiny much greater than the life of a dog or a cat in your home. So yes, God, give us a bigger vision of who we are and what you've made us to be. Now, this is great. Verse 24, he's going to give us reasons not to worry. And I love this. God doesn't just tell you, well, stop worrying. Why? Well, stop worrying. No, he's going to tell you why you should stop worrying. Verse 24, consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouses nor barn, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to a stature? If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, not even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothes the grass, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? God takes care of the birds, don't you? Don't you think? I mean, when's the last time you, 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 know, you saw a bird in a, you know, line looking for food in a soup line? <laughs> now look, this is what I always like to observe about the birds. The birds don't worry, but the birds do work. Right? Birds are busy about their food. God provides for the birds, but he's not just dropping worms from heaven into open mouths. So go out and get the hustle for that worm, little birdie. But God provides for them. You don't see a bunch of starved to death birds on the ground, do you? No, God provides for them. And the whole point is this, verse 24, of how much more value are you than the birds? One of the sorest trials a person can undergo is perhaps because of adverse circumstances in their life, perhaps of great disappointments, they come to believe that God has basically forgotten about them. Jesus speaks so lovingly and so persuasively here about the birds and how God cares for them and how he would care for us that he wants to challenge that fear that some of us have, that God has forgotten about us. I wonder if I'm not speaking to a heart tonight that's broken by that sense that God has forgotten about you. Maybe you come here to a Wednesday night service. Maybe you come out of ritual. Maybe you come out of habit. Maybe you come out of the expectation of others. Maybe you've come hoping that tonight would be the night that God speaks to you some way and assures you that he hasn't forgotten about you. Can I just be that word of assurance to your life right now? He remembers. He knows all the birds. He knows you. He cares about you. Now Jesus also speaks with such great sense when he says in verse 25, which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? What good does all that worry do in your life? Listen, there might be worse sins than worry. 
But there's probably no more worthless sins than worry. It just doesn't accomplish anything. No, God even takes care of the grass. Look at it there in verse 28. If God so clothes the grass, he takes care of it. He takes care of the the flowers. All is under the care of a loving heavenly father. Now I want you to think about this. God takes care of the flowers, does he not? But it doesn't mean that every day is sunshine and warm breezes for the flowers. They have to endure the wind and the rain and all the rest of it. Matter of fact, some of that together is what makes the flowers grow. But nevertheless, all is under God's gracious care. And so he says, why are you like this? You of little faith. Let me read you a little Spurgeon right here. He says, little faith is not a little fault, for it greatly wrongs the Lord and it sadly grieves the fretful mind. To think that the Lord who clothes the lilies will leave his own children naked is shameful. Oh, little faith, learn better manners. I like that. I like when Spurgeon calls you out like that and speaks to his own little faith and to my little faith and tells it, Learn some better manners. God will take care of you better than that. Verse 29. And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after. And your father knows that you need these things. But seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Do you know what he says there in verse 29? He says, don't seek what you should eat or what you should drink, and... Don't have an anxious mind. The good news of Jesus is simple. You don't have to hold on to the things of this world with a death grip. You can hold on to them more loosely knowing that God will take care of you. Jesus himself let go of everything that heaven could afford so that he could come to this earth and he was happy with a simple trust in God. So don't worry, he says. God will take care of you. His love, his grace is extended towards you. It's very interesting there in verse 29 where he says, nor have an anxious mind. Anxious mind translates the ancient Greek word. Okay, this is a hard word for me to say. Meteoresthi. I don't know if I said it right, but close enough. It's with the root word meteor. And this is unusual. New Testament translators sort of scratch their heads just a little bit and say, what exactly does he talk about there? I mean, how would that be connected to the concept of a mediator? Our good friend John Trapp, that old Puritan commentator, said this. He says, the sense is this, hang not in suspense as the meteors do in the air, not certain whether to hang or to fall to the ground. I mean, a a meteor is uncertain, isn't it? It's not like the sun that you always know is up there. It's up there, but maybe it'll fall down. It's going through the sky. What's going to happen to it? In the same way, don't have an anxious, uncertain mind for yourself. Have this wonderful sense of certainty in the Lord. Assurance, isn't that what we're talking about? You know, there's nothing wrong for you to pray that God would give you a greater sense of assurance. You love him. You know he'll take care of you. But listen, wouldn't you like a greater sense of that assurance? Ask God for it here this evening. And then he goes on in verse 30. He says, for all these things the nations of the world seek after. 
Jesus contrasted the life of those who do not know God and are separated from him with those who do know God and receive his loving care. Now listen, when you do know God and receive his loving care, shouldn't your life look different from those who don't know God and don't receive his loving care? That's pretty logical, isn't it? Can, can I, it's, it's astounding to me how basic and logical Jesus' teaching is. If you worry and get wound up about the same things that people who don't know God, what's wrong with your life? What's wrong with that picture? I, I mean, shouldn't you be able to receive difficulty and tribulation in your life differently than someone who doesn't know God? That's Jesus' whole point there. But instead, verse 31, but seek first the kingdom of God or seek the kingdom of God. This has to be the rule of our life when ordering our priorities. Now listen, it's wrong to think that God is just another priority on our list of priorities. Okay, I'm going to prioritize my life. Okay, uh, what's number one? Okay, God's number one. That's one number two. Uh, okay, my family's number two. What's number three? Um, my uh, career. And then, you know, you just start, okay, list the price. Ladies and gentlemen, God should not be in competition with your other priorities. In other words, your seeking the kingdom of God should be in the midst of all your priorities. The kind of a husband and father or, or, or wife and mother that you should be should be reflective of somebody who seeks the kingdom of God. The kind of employee or whatever it is you are in this world should reflect somebody who seeks the kingdom of God. You see, it's very rare, I'm not going to say never, but it's very rare that, that someone would have to choose between honoring God and loving his wife or, or honoring God and being a good worker. So what do you do? You honor God and you seek his kingdom by being a good husband. You honor God and you seek his kingdom by being a good worker or working hard by what God has put before you in this world. And don't forget the immediate context. Jesus is reminding us that our physical well-being is not a worthy object to live your life for. That's not. If you think that your physical well-being is a worthy goal for you to live your life for, then your God is mammon and your life is cursed with worry. And you live your life too much like an animal lives. You're concerned mostly with your physical needs. Can I say what I said before? Lift up your eyes. God has given you a countenance to look up to the heavens. Lift up your eyes to a life that's eternal, to a life that communes with the God who created you. I'm not saying that you detach yourself from this physical world. God has put us in this material world and wants us to live in it and glorify him and enjoy him in the midst of it. But it's with a looking up to where our true life lies. You see, Jesus didn't tell them to just stop worrying. He told them to replace worry 
with a seeking after the kingdom of God. Why? Look at it there in verse 31. He says, and all these things shall be added to you. If you put God's kingdom first and do not think that your physical well-being is a worthy object to live your life for, then you're going to enjoy all these things. You'll have heavenly treasure. You'll have rest and divine provision. You'll have fulfillment of God's highest purpose for man, fellowship with him, being part of his kingdom, and you'll know that there's a loving Father in heaven that takes care of you. This choice, am I going to seek God's kingdom or am I going to live my life on a focus on basic physical needs and desires? That's a choice we face virtually every day of our life. Verse 32. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourself money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also fascinated by these last three verses that we're going to take a look at here this evening. First of all, in verse 32, what does he say? Do not fear little flock. In the original wording, he uses what you might call a double diminutive. Literally in the ancient Greek, he says, do not fear little, little flock. He throws in two littles just to make sure they understand you're a little flock. It was to this small and unlikely flock that God was going to do what? He says, it's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now, I think about that. They were little, but they were a flock. And you know what it means when you're a flock? It means you have a shepherd. And look at who their shepherd was. They weren't scattered sheep wandering about, fending for themselves. No, they were a flock, and they were under shepherd. And let me tell you, it's much better to be a little flock with a great, big, great shepherd than it is to be a big flock with a bad shepherd. And there they are, a little flock, but Jesus was their shepherd. And so what does he say in verse 32? It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I believe that this was true in a personal sense for the disciples because they enjoyed the presence of King Jesus and his reign among them. But friends, I think it was also true in another sense. It was true in another sense because Jesus, not all that long from saying this, was going to ascend into heaven and he was going to leave the responsibility, humanly speaking, of his kingdom on earth with what? With those disciples. It's yours. Guys, I'm going to ascend to heaven. I'm going to toss you the keys. Don't wreck the car. He's going to give you the kingdom. And I just think, I wonder if, in my mind, it just plays out the way it does in my mind. No, I'm making my own Bible movie every time I read the Bible. You know, the disciples aren't quite getting it. You know, they're trying to look earnestly, but they're not quite getting it, what Jesus says. But I picture Jesus getting a little emotional here. All the work that I've done after three years, all the life I've lived, all the sacrifice I do on Calvary, all the message I preach, I'm going to entrust it to you 12. It's the Father's good pleasure to give you this kingdom. You guys don't see it in yourselves, but God sees it in you. God's going to do something amazing. He's going to do something so amazing in you guys to whom he entrusts his kingdom that he's going to do it all the way 
So it's going to extend all the way to a group of believers in Santa Barbara 2,000 years later. Now look, these men were not perfect. They were not supermen. They all had their weaknesses and their failings. But they did a good enough job in passing on what was given to them to a next generation that it has extended all the way down to us here 2,000 years later, quite a many thousand miles away. Isn't that beautiful? Now look, it's only true in a sense that God gave them the kingdom. He's in charge of it all the time. But as his body on earth, they were the emissaries of it. So what does he say? Verse 33, sell what you have and give alms. You see, this command to give away, it's sort of a test of discipleship, and it's also a tool of discipleship. Again, he's measuring. Guys, measure the covetousness of your heart by your willingness to be able to give things away, by your generosity. And then he says, verse 34, concluding this, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This way I understand. The correlation between the location of your treasure and the location of your heart, it isn't a suggestion that Jesus makes. He doesn't say, guys, and I'm really telling you, put your treasure where your heart is. No, he says, your treasure is where your heart is, and your heart is where your treasure is. That's pretty heavy, isn't it? Now, When a person's interests are primarily stuck on earth, that's where their commitment is going to be. And if you regard your material possessions as your true treasure, then your heart is set on earth. But if you prepare ahead, remember the parable of the rich fool? If you prepare ahead and make yourself rich towards God, I'll conclude with two thoughts here. First of all, let's not forget that this teaching about riches and greed came from the man who interrupted Jesus' sermon with a request to settle a dispute, right? I wonder if this guy didn't want to crawl into a hole after Jesus went off on all this. It's like, okay, okay, man. But Jesus is like, okay, fine, you want to interrupt my message? Great, but look, now you've got to listen to me for a while. And Jesus went out touching the, the, the real issue of this man's heart. Jesus warned that man, that man who interrupted his sermon. He said, Mr., I'm warning you about the location of your treasure and your heart. You think it's all about getting the money that your brother owes you. Okay, well, look, Jesus says, quite apart from that, look at where your own heart is at and deal with that. That's the one thing. But then the final thought is this. You know, we live in what many people think is a fairly affluent community. Of course it is and it isn't, right? I mean, we know that it is and it is. I mean, we're just, we're regular people. But at least we're known. It's kind of, people have this image of us here in Santa Barbara that we're an affluent community. Let me tell you, I don't mind that at all. Whatever. It's a nice place to live. I guess it makes property values kind of high. How wonderful it is and will be when we're known even more for being a community that's rich towards God. That's what we need to ask God to cultivate in us all the more. Lord, whatever resources you've blessed me with, thank you for them, Lord. I want to use them responsibly. I want to be rich towards God. 
Lord, show me how every step of the way. Father, that's my prayer. It's my prayer for me, and it's my prayer for all of us. Lord, it just seems appropriate in our community. Lord, you have blessed this community. It's, it's really blessed with so many uh, resources. But Lord, the, the thing that we really long to be known for is to be rich towards you. We don't want to be that church that you spoke to in the book of Revelation that thought they were rich, but they were really poor. No, Lord. We want to be rich towards you. And Lord, I, I thank you. I thank you for the evidence of that that I see. I thank you, Lord, um, for the faithfulness and the generosity of people in this community. We just ask that you'd build on it more and more and that there'd be a lot of riches in heaven among us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.